following program is intended for mature audiences. Welcome. Okay, you know what? Let me let me invite. Hang on. What the fuck? Where are you? Ah, okay. Let me invite a friend of mine, Kevin. Not Kevin Booty Check, huh? Uh, no. Hmm. I want to invite Crisper too now, now that I'm at it. I thought he's probably busy. But let me give him. Let me give him the link. Ah, he's not even on. Uh, Makes it kind of to invite him. I'll just put it in the direct chat. Hey, what's up? Hey. Hi. You're uh. What's see, up? Kevin, you're live right now, but but I'm using OBS to stream, but people can still hear you. Alright, I'm putting my headphones in. Alright. Okay. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Alright, so what's happening? Uh, nothing much. Like I said, I'm programming. I fi figured I'd do a stream. I wanted to... You know what I mean? Figured I'd invite you also. See what's up. Cool. Yeah. Well, I learned something new today. That, uh, actually, no, I can't guess. Go ahead. That there's a sub called an Italiano. Did you know that? <laughs> I can't say I'm surprised. I don't know. It just, I... Uh... Oh, so you've yeah. heard of it. No, I haven't heard of it, but I'm not surprised. Oh, yeah, RSC. Well... Actually, now that I have you in here, I actually want to read you an interesting article. I'll, re I'll read it on stream here, so... Kevin, have I met you before? Um, not sure. I, I'll take a guess and say I don't think so, just to be safe. I mean, it, it's possible, but if not, you know, nice meeting you and all that. Oh. Alright, Kevin, uh, you know, this is, this is the, this is the article, uh, you, you know, I read, I read, I read a little bit to you. All right, the brain's fix-it brigade, naturally occurring, quote, exosomes, end quote, show promise for repairing nerve damage. An active lifestyle improves brain health, scientists have long believed. The studies bear this out. Physical, intellectual, and social activity or environmental enrichment in the parlance enhances learning and memory and protects against aging and neurological disease. Recent research suggests one benefit of environmental enrichment at the cellular level. It repairs brain myelin, the protective insulation surrounding axion, axons, or nerve fibers, which can be lost because of aging, injury, or diseases such as multiple sclerosis. But how does an enrichment environment trigger myelin repair in the first place? The answer appears to involve naturally occurring membrane-wrapped packets called exosomes. A number of different cell types release these little sacs of proteins and genetic material into the body's fluids. Loaded with signaling molecules, exosomes spread through the body like messages in a bottle, says R. Douglas Fields, a neurobiologist. Hang on. How dare you! A neurobiologist at the National Institutes, Institutes of Health. They target, they target particular cells and damage their behavior. In animal cells, sorry, change their behavior. In, in, in animal studies, exosomes secreted by immune cells during environmental enrichment oh, caused pause, cells. Pause real quick. Pause real quick. Do, not to, I'm gonna, I'm not trying to interrupt you, 
for to get you off topic, but it says that they were doing animal trials. Does it say what animals were involved in those trials before you continue? No, it just says animal trials. Okay, go ahead. Okay. In animal trials, exosomes secreted by immune cells during environmental enrichment cause cells in the brain to start myelin repair. Researchers think exosomes might find might find use as biomarkers for diagnosing diseases or as vehicles in, to deliver cancer drugs or other therapeutic agents. The exosomes produced during environmental enrichment carry micro hold on microRNAs, small pieces of genetic material, which appear to instruct immature cells in the brain to develop into myelin-making cells called oligodendrocytes. When researchers... Right, real quick, real quick just, I just want to make sure, I know it's annoying to keep interrupting, but just so I make sure that I'm understanding what you're reading, because I'm not a doctor, <laughs> These cells that are in question right now, they're saying that they help create the pathway in which your brain communicates with the rest of your body, right? Or no? Well, here's the, here's the, here's the beautiful thing. Is there a doctor in the house? I actually have a doctor in the call right now. That's the guy you just talked to. Oh, okay. Nice. All right, cool. So never mind, guys. I don't want to... <laughs> I don't want to... Uh, Fuck his whole deal up here. He clearly would know a hell of a lot more than me. I live with it, but he studies it, so you know he's got the upper hand. <laughs> I think your question was really good, though, Kevin. That's the exact Thank right you. question to ask. But yeah, see, see finish, this is why. Dude, finish this your is why, paragraph okay. till midnight. Yeah. Athena. Okay. Uh, where the fuck did I leave off? Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, hold on. Uh, micro DNA. They make pathways into the brain, with the with the thing. Okay. I don't okay. Know. I'll start. I'll just start. I'll just start. Uh, the exosomes produced during environmental enrichment carry micro RNAs, small pieces of genetic material, which which appear to instruct immature cells in the brain to develop into myelin-making cells called oligodendrocytes. When researchers at the University of Chicago withdrew exosomes from the blood of rats and administered them to aging animals, the older rats' myelin levels rose to 62%. The team reported in February in, in uh, Glia, or something, I guess that's the magazine, the researchers also discovered how to generate exosomes outside the body, making them on demand for potential therapies. By stimulating immune cells from bone marrow, the group was able to mimic Mother Nature's environmental enrichment in a dish, quote, quote unquote, so, you know, like quoting the guy, says Richard Craig, professor of neurology at Chicago. Craig, Craig's team is now exploring how to craft exo... Hold on. I have to craft exosome into a treatment for multiple sclerosis. The lab-grown exosome stimulated myelin production in a sample of rat brain tissue intended to simulate multiple sclerosis damage, returning myelin levels to 77% of normal. Craig and his colleagues recently reported in the Journal of Neuroimmunology. The next step is to see if exosomes harvested from immune cells work as effectively in live animals with the disease, says team member Aya Puzak, a PhD candidate in neurobiology. With any luck, Puzak says the research could progress to human tests in five years. Does anyone have any objection to what I just read? Yes, I have a bunch of objections, actually, if I can steal the show for a moment. Sorry, I'm being <laughs> ignorant. But, okay, first of all, 
you're testing this shit out on rats. The last time I checked, human beings and rats are nowhere close to each other. Uh, so hold on, uh, hold on. Uh, RSC, is there is you know a rats and humans sort of similar but not like you know th this would be your area because. Yeah, if you were going to choose an animal to experiment on, like to f look for things that might be good for people, rats would actually be the best best animal to look at just because they're small, they're easy to raise, you can raise and test on a lot of them. So they're the right size and the right shape, but they also share a lot of biology with people because they've grown up around people for thousands and thousands of years. Um, there wouldn't be mice if there weren't people. There wouldn't be rats if there weren't people. They code we're like codependent or not codependent on them, but they're dependent on us. They live off of our waste products. The pizza droppings that we leave, you know? <laughs> so, okay, so because of that, they're exposed to the same environment as us. They make good models to test on. Yeah. But just because something works in, in mice and rats doesn't necessarily mean it's gonna work in people. Yeah, I was just gonna say that would bring me to the next thing was that I know that uh they use body parts like um heart valves and stuff that they take out of pigs and they put that into a person would would that be the follow-up trial to go from rats to say a pig before they jump into testing it on human beings but then quickly to add to that a five-year window does not seem like that big of an amount of time when you're talking about a project of this scale well i mean kev kev they they they, they said they said within 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 five years of human testing i forget i forget how old that magazine i have is it might be maybe a year or two old so they're probably doing the test over the, the tests already but but he you know he, he here's the thing if i understood if i understood this correct you know correctly exosomes are released by your body naturally already so just you know so just so just because they can grow them in the lab using you know using immune cells doesn't mean your body doesn't produce them already like you know what i mean as you know as 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 i've read you know what i mean physical physical uh intellectual and social interaction actually helps the you know helps you like you know granted it's not a cure-all whatever but it, you know what i mean so yeah, i understand but it does what you mean but at the same time it's like your body already produces this shit. I mean, right, RFC? Yeah, I mean, exosomes, like he was saying, they're a biological mechanism that we've understood for many decades. They're basically just little packages of proteins and other chemicals that the body, that the cells in your body used to talk to each other. And the real thing is we don't understand how that language works. Like, exosome one versus exosome two they're all the different packets of words and language for the cells we don't understand that language yet and so it sounds like this study that midnight's talking about or this research that midnight is talking about is looking at hey what type of language or what type of exosomes might tell these nerves to repair themselves when they're damaged so i did not be right back problems like multiple sclerosis maybe the problem is that they're the cells aren't communicating to each other appropriately and that's why the damage occurs i mean this is all speculation at this point but it would be interesting yeah. to see if it helped these people with those kind of diseases
Well, yeah, because I was just going to say, I got diagnosed with it about, just to give you a little bit of, of a background on what I'm dealing with here. I was born with cerebral palsy, but uh, back in 2009, I had a hell of a migraine that it was so bad I literally couldn't uh, see straight. Uh, and I had difficulty opening my eyes, so I went to the hospital. They did the CAT scan or the MRI on my brain, whatever it was, and they said back then that they needed to test for MS or Lyme's disease to rule it out. Fast forward all the way to 2014, since nobody had... Uh, my regular physician, and I didn't have a specialist, a neurospecialist at that time. I decided to go out and try to find one. So this guy orders me up um, an EGG test or an EEG test, um, spinal tap, and all that other stuff to uh, try to figure out what's going on. And it turns out that I have MS three doctors later. You know, the first guy said that I had it from the spinal tap. Second doctor said that I didn't. Third doctor said it was definitely there. And you can see in all the testing and everything else that was done, you can see that it's there. So now I have that on top of this. And they've thrown out medications my way. Uh, just for example, one that I can name off the top of my head that I can remember is Copaxone, I think it was called. And, you know, they, this is the part that really got me, just being a patient and looking at this from my perspective, where I have a professional sitting across from me who has studied the disease however for however many years and deals with numerous patients. He's like, listen, dude. I'm projecting that you'll probably be, in a, if you're lucky, you'll make it to 50 before you have to uh, use a wheelchair full time. But you can take this medication and you can use it. Now, it's not going to cure you, but it should slow down the progression of the disease. But the problem with that is right now your disease is dormant. But if I give you this medication, there's a good chance that it can bring it out of its dormancy. And we don't want that to happen. But that's a risk that you need to outweigh to see if I believe you should be on the medication. But you need to understand that that risk is there. So having yeah. said all of that, I know that they've been studying this, I think, since like 1987, somewhere around there. And it seems like we're still not any closer at least in my experience anyway we're not too much closer to figuring out uh what causes it where it um if it is in fact just from one parent or is it a combined gene from both parents and then the obvious thing which would be uh the the proper treatment so that we don't have to destroy a patient's immune system in the process of trying to aid them in fighting against this deterioration yeah i think you hit on a lot of really like really good points there um, this is why I'm I like to do. Testing, he's smart as hell sorry i'm assuming the testing you were talking about you got when you were pretty young is that correct 
with so that, this, uh, the ones that I just brought up. Yeah, the testing, like where you said, they like one person thought it wasn't, one person thought it was MS. Uh, that was uh, in uh, 2014, so that was only four years ago. Okay, that I, was actually pretty recent. Yeah, I lived, I lived my entire life with the diagnosis of cerebral palsy, which is still there. But um, like I said, from the migraine going to the hospital, I go to the doctor. He does the uh, spinal tap. He did the EEG, uh, blood work panel, and I think that an MRI with and without contrast to see where the damages was. So mm -hmm. I went back into his office after that was all done. He tried to put me on medication after I read the side effects. I refused it, after which point he refused to see me as a patient. He actually was like, listen, if you're not going to take the medication, there's no reason for you to be in my office. You can go and find somebody else to treat you, or you can come back and see me when it gets bad enough for you to come to your senses. Which is so I go. Up. Yeah, it is, but I mean, whatever, the guy's there to make money. What are you going to do? Uh, I mean, I mean, technically he's right. It doesn't sound like he kind of explained it very well. I mean, if you're if you're on the treatment, you got to come see him regularly. He has to monitor you for the side effects. But if you're not going to be on the treatment, you don't have to come see him and you know waste your money basically. So I think he's right. You don't have to come see him. But the thing with MS is, until even I think even last year, the the way that you get diagnosed with it from a specialist like a neurologist, you have to get two things you have to have the mri findings and you have to have the blood work findings when they do the lumbar tap and if you don't have both like if you have one if they see it on mri some doctors will say no that's not m that's not ms you should look for something else right and that's exactly if you see it on the mri it's ms don't buy into that bullshit so i mean different that's... people have different opinions on how those tests work Sorry, not to not to step on you, but that's actually exactly what happened when I went to the the second doctor. Just because at at that point, the reason why I'd gone to the second doctor was because well, I just want to make sure. Let me see what is actually happening here. And uh, the second doctor looked over all the paperwork. Now, this is the part that confuses me. Is he has me bring in the MRIs, and he he goes, okay, I'm going to take these into a, another room and look at them, and then I'll come back in. He looks at them, comes into the room slowly, and he just looks at me and he goes, um, do you know where you are right now? I'm like, of course I know where I am. What kind of question is that? He's like, no, I'm not. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm seriously asking you if you know where you are right now. So I told him, like, yeah, I'm in your office. He's like, where is that? In Manahawkin, New Jersey, obviously. Who's the president? You know, going over all those types of questions. And when I was able to give him the information he wanted, he was like, dude, I've never seen somebody with the amount of damage that you have in your brain have the functionality and the, the, be able to speak the way that you can. He's like, but I don't see, I don't see MS anywhere here. That other doctor had no idea what he was talking about. MS is not, and this is what the second doctor said. To quote him, he said that MS is not 
something that you're born with or you live with necessarily. It's more it's more so that it comes on almost like a stroke that nine out of ten times a stroke is actually misdiagnosed as a stroke when it's really an MS flare up or mm-hmm. something to that effect. So then from there sure. I went back to my regular position for a routine checkup and then they pushed me to go to another neurologist because they felt that uh the tests did speak for themselves and that the damage is there and that something needs to be done with that which that's where the copaxone and all that stuff comes into play but now as far as treatment goes there's there are side effects, but the other thing is the fact that my insurance doesn't cover the medication, and I would like to. Good. So that makes it really difficult too. Uh, so you're right. There are there are actually three patterns of MS. There's one where it it keeps hitting you. You get worse and worse and worse. There's one where you have the the flare ups, and then you get better. You recover all the way, and you keep having flares where you go downhill, but then you recover and you go back up. And there, are, there's a pattern where you just kind of slowly go up and down and up and down, but overall it's a downward pattern. So yeah, it's I difficult think, to figure out sometimes. I think what they said that I have is relapse and remission. Okay, that's the type. It go. You'll have a flare. You'll you'll have a lot of symptoms, but then when they give you the medicines, they usually give steroids for the flares. But once you get over that flare up, you usually regain all. All your normal functions you get back to your normal basically is that what they said but, you had yeah because that that actually makes sense because i was pretty sure that he did say uh whatever i just mentioned before the uh remission or whatever it is called uh but he did say that if i do have a flare in the event that i have a flare up to go to the hospital and he would give me steroids to treat mm-hmm. it at this point that's pretty much all he can do other than try to fight the insurance company to cover for the medication. And he's like, you don't need to really worry about side effects. This is an injectable. He's yeah, like, the pills. good for most people. But yeah, um, that's what he said. He, he said that the say, pills are bad. I would say a couple of things. Um, the problem with, so what they call your pattern, it's called relapsing and remitting. MS. There it is. Uh, that's the that's the name that the doctors use. That it, like you said, it just it comes and it goes. The pat- the problem is it's very hard to diagnose because if you catch the person after they've had the flare, it's not going to show up on the MRI, and you'll falsely think no, they don't have MS. You'll only catch it during the flare, like right in those few first days when the flare up starts. So you got to get the, mm. that MRI right then, otherwise you're going to miss it completely. So that's crazy. It doesn't, I mean, it sounds like you've had kind of a typical experience. Some people, they'll see one doctor and this doctor will realize that, hey, this pattern that comes and goes, it's very difficult to catch. Based on the symptoms and like the things you're telling me about what you feel, this is very typical for like what MS it looks like. And just because I don't see it on the MRI doesn't mean I'm not going to treat you like you have MS. Right. Whereas other doctors will be like, I don't have that kind of experience. I just don't see it on the MRI. You don't have MS. Right, and they did, through the blood panel also, they did, and the spinal tap, they did rule out Lyme's disease as well. So I, I think that might have helped a little bit. But the, the shittiest part is that they're like, you know, 
I, I don't know if this is necessarily connected, but before I was put on pain medication between the the CP spasms and my back injuries prior to even knowing that I had the MS, I smoked a shitload of marijuana to try to ease the pain. <laughs> Are you a real doctor, dude? I mean, like, you know, can you prescribe some drugs for me, man? Come on, dude. I, I, I'll, I'll, hey, I'll split whatever I get with you, okay? <laughs> and when I, when I stopped it a few years ago, you know, back then, it, it seems like that's when all, like, the side effects started to become more prominent than they were before. I mean, I don't know if that was... If that was actually helping, I mean, I have read studies here and there that says that it does help, but I mean, I, I understand it's it not You're not wrong. People do say that that helps. And then with MS, if you're not treating the flares, there are other things you have to treat. People develop chronic pains from MS, uh, disabilities, and you have to just manage them. Some people, you know, they become chronically constipated or they have chronic diarrhea. I mean, it can affect anything that's related to your nerves. And muscles, basically. I'm so, I, I, I am so glad I invited you when I did, Kevin, because this is awesome. <laughs> I mean, to be completely honest, not to gross anybody out, but I mean, you know, the standard rate of pain that I live with most of my life, it feels like I have two small hands underneath my skin, just squeezing the bones in my legs. But I've always had. I've always had a problem with retention. Like, I, even when Midnight has been to my house, he can tell you I'll hit the bathroom 20 times in half an hour because I can't get it all out in one shot. And the spasms and the headaches, it all just, it brings it all in there and it's a cocktail of shittiness, unfortunately, which, you know, it would be more convenient to be able to... I've, I've even told the doctors, like, look, as ignorant as this may sound, I understand you're trying to help me by giving me medication, but I know what the side effects of marijuana are, and they've helped me in the past. I would rather just use the marijuana and ride off into the sunset, and if I have to be pushing myself in a wheelchair to go into disappear into that horizon and at least I will go happy in the sense that I won't have to worry about what is this experimental drug going to be doing to me but then on the on the opposite end of that you can make the same argument for the opiates or the muscle relaxers that I have to take day to day because of the yeah, damage it's unfortunate that we're limited in what we can prescribe uh, with uh, the medical I mean, marijuana, most of it is political. Like it, it could be very helpful for someone like yourself. Some ad advice from me: I think you need to stop seeing. I mean, you can continue to see the neurologist. They will want to give you the copaxone, the glutaramir, those medications that can, you know, reduce the progression of the MS. Because eventually, it will get to the point where it does start to limit the functions, the things you can do on your own. I think you should start seeing someone, uh, a palliative care specialist. Uh, palliative care are the type of people who work with people who have serious illness like yourself and they focus on managing the symptoms and it sounds like you might be having people aren't focusing on managing your symptoms at this point they're just managing they want to put you on these medicines 
That's all they're thinking. That's exactly, that's exactly what it is. Even, even my pain management doctor. Like, look, I go through, I've gone through all of the, the whole ordeal. They, when I first started going there, before they would even write me a prescription, they sent me to a psychologist so that I can be evaluated to make sure that I wouldn't be at risk to abuse the drugs. I had no problem with that. I got into a conversation with the doctor that probably doesn't happen very often, but I can get into that later if, if it happens to come up. But they're almost just like, Okay, these Percocets and this Soma are the Band-Aid. Here's your Band-Aid we're going to put over your bullet wound, and you go and have a good day now, man, because that's as far as we're willing to take this. We mm -hmm. don't want to hear about your other problems. All we want to do is be able to go in your pocket and count your pills and drug test you, and until you agree... To, to just to bring it quickly back to medical marijuana, they actually tried to strong arm me into getting a license, which I find wildly ridiculous that I've been arguing with these doctors to try to put me on a cocktail of a low dose of opiates with the medical marijuana. Mm -hmm. Because uh, obviously, through my own trial and error, I found that smoking weed does actually lessen the need for opiates they refuse to do that i have to pick one or the other no. but they also want to charge me a hundred and fifty dollars every three months for the doctor to write a prescription that says i can go to a dispensary and buy pot and then i'm supposed to go into a dispensary and pay upwards of five hundred dollars for a fucking ounce when I can just as easily go to the pharmacy, as sad as this is, and go get my fucking prescription painkillers that are killing people by the millions because nobody knows how to control themselves, is part of the issue, but that's a whole nother thing. For a dollar twenty-five, I can get ninety Percocets. Now instead of ninety, it's a hundred and twenty for the same price. It's good. At least that the option is there to have something to deal with the pain but it's insanity that they make you choose between something that is affordable and way more dangerous over something else that is far more expensive but way more safe in my personal opinion to use now maybe you feel a different way about this maybe you've had the exact opposite experience i can only speak about what i know versus like 900 bucks that it would cost me to be able to just use marijuana it's insanity yeah i really agree uh with you on a lot of that uh, opioids are good for certain things and unfortunately the pain from ms it's not all fixable with opioids there are other types of medicines other types of things you have to use to treat that pain effectively and a pain management specialist is only is ba they're basically an opioid specialist for the most part they do a couple of other things but that's really all they do and so when you go see them you're basically asking for opioids you're not going to be offered those other things uh, that's why i think you should probably see uh Palliative care, pain management specialist. They 
specialize in much more therapies than just the simple opioid prescribing that a pain management doctor is going to. And it's unfortunate that someone hasn't already told you to go see someone like that. Yeah, no, the only thing that they've said is the, the, I was originally getting the opiates from my, uh, my PCP and then, um, they, what is it? What do they call it? They opted out of prescribing them because uh, the doc, one of the doctors in that office, actually got hit by the DEA for selling prescriptions, which I I had no idea because I'm a jerk off and I play by the rules. I didn't know that that was an option. <laughs> Not that I would have done it, but it would have been nice to know that that's what this guy is doing because now everywhere that I go, they see that. That was my doctor, and they think I was in on the deal yeah, with him. You're guilty by association for some fucking reason. Yeah. Right, but they they sent me to the pain management doctor, and then the pain doctor just says, "Well, go see the neurologist or whoever." But we just want to let you know that you're contractually obligated to not see anybody else for any type of pain relief at all whatsoever, or you will be blacklisted throughout the country. Throughout the fucking country, like, holy shit, RSC, are you, like, <laughs> this is probably, like, RSC is like, dude, that's fucked up, and I work in the industry, or the, no, the no, field. That's par for the course, man, it's sad. A lot of people think with their wallet instead of thinking about what's best for their patients. So, you know, okay, don't take, don't take this the wrong way, but, can you know, can you see why Tommy Hall has the mentality he does? No, I mean, it doesn't matter. Even though that they have that thinking with their pocketbook mentality, uh, the things that the doctors are prescribing are, are helpful in the end, even though they're thinking with their pocketbook. Yeah, no, That's I know, I know. Evidence I, I, shows. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, den I'm not, den I am not denying that they're not helpful, but I'm just, I'm just telling you the mentality, you know, the, the reason why some people have the mentality they do, like uh, good old Tommy Boy there. Please go away, let me sleep for the love of God! Housekeeping, you want me to jerk you off? Yes! Oh, it's you. Good morning, sunshine. I'm not well, disagreeing again, with you. If, if your doctor's treating you like this, you should just go see another doctor. Uh, some people yeah. are jerks like that. Yeah, <laughs> you but... know what? You don't have to take advice from them. Yeah, but... but, but you have but, the right to see whoever you leaves, want to. Yeah, but it leaves a sour taste in your mouth, right, Kev? Well, I mean, of course it does, but then you also have to realize who you're dealing with. When you go to a pain... Look, I sold drugs before. I'm not proud of it. It's something that I did in my life. I can't take it back. Whatever. It was nothing serious. It was only weed, but it was what it was. I had to do what I had to do to get by to be able to self-medicate at the time. So, mm -hmm. whatever. But you have to understand, when you walk into a one of these doctor's offices, a lot of these guys are just drug dealers in white coats, dude. They're and, and they're in it for, they want to run the practice to sell you the steroid shots to put in your back or to get, to collect the insurance money or the out-of-pocket costs for your visit. Now they're going to dominate the medical marijuana industry at $150 a clip to write a fucking prescription. But this is, you have to deal with better the devil you know. Unfortunately, that's all that this is, is you can go out on the street 
and you can take your chances with some random person and go to jail, or you can pay me a finder's fee, and I will cut you a prescription that is guaranteed, at least to my knowledge, that's going to be vetted and sorted through from the manufacturer to the pharmacy to your pocket. It's just going to cost you a little bit more. So which route do you really want to take? I mean, that's pretty insane that you're saying $500 an ounce because I know uh, I work in uh, Nevada and Arizona and they both had medical marijuana um, for patients. And it, it wasn't necessarily, it was a little higher than street prices. And you only had to go in once a year to get your license, you know, your prescription renewed and yeah it was like 150 bucks uh, or whatever the insurance would cover but the problem is that if the government keeps it illegal the insurance companies will never cover it and that needs to change exactly now i i bring this i am i feel bad for my pain management doctor because i just met this dude two months ago and i am beating this poor prick down with this argument but i want him to know how passionate I am about all of this and how serious that I take it and the fact that I am educated in this field. Like, I know what I'm talking about in certain instances. Like, just like the governor of New Jersey recently just expanded our medical marijuana laws, which actually, to your point that you just made about the places that you just said, they... Now you would only have to renew your license once a year, which before I'm pretty sure it was every six months. And that's at, it was at 500 bucks, I think. But then he just dropped it down to, for the permit and the license that you need to buy is 150 bucks. But if you're on food stamps, social security, Medicare, Anything like that, you can. You only have to pay twenty dollars. Hang on, for, or, that's what it should be. It should be like a copay. Yeah, RSC, RSC. I wanted, to, I wanted, to, I wanted to, say, I wanted to say something really quick. Like, uh, like Kevin, Kevin. I'm, I'm sure. Well, RSC can speak for himself too. But you know, about you know, I, I think, you know, I, 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 I think out of, out of all the people RSC has talked to since I've known him, you are probably the smartest one ever. Well, okay. well I, like I wouldn't say right? I, I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't no, 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 say no, no. I'm okay, smart. okay. I I misspoke, but I would. What, I, I appreciate. Hold on. I pre, let me just address that real quick. I I appreciate what you're trying to do, but I would not say that I'm smart so much as I have been forced to. Almost, I've been forced to be familiar with all of this because if you don't know what you're walking into going into a doctor's office in some ways is almost like going into a mechanic's but, shop but yeah, well, that's true but kev but, but kev he, see here's the thing i you know i i see it as smart in a way you know in, in a sense that you had you had the the foresight to actually do that you know what i mean well, like, i appreciate i appreciate that speak for you like rsc like get, you know give me your like view of it but yeah i think it's unfortunate kevin that you've been through this uh i don't even know if you'd call it ordeal call it like an odyssey or ordeal that's a, a good way to say it yeah but a lot of people in your position people who live with chronic pain these chronic medical conditions they have a damn hard time getting people to first of all believe they had these problems oh, totally uh, 
He still so he can, horror story. He told me horror stories. <laughs> if I can, if I can interrupt you just just quickly, I cannot, <clears throat> I cannot tell you, I, I should have earned myself a, a seat in the Senate for the amount of arguing that I've had to do representing myself in front of a doctor because, one, they are either uneducated. Or two, they take somebody that looks like me, though either it's the way that I dress or my age or how I speak, and they automatically think this person just wants pills to get high, and that's all that they're out for. You have no way, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, well, you can't prove to me that you actually have this pain because I know other patients that have the same disease and they don't have pain like you say that you have. But yeah, everybody, different, asshole, I'm allergic to penicillin. You could probably take all the penicillin you want. Everybody is built differently, so you can't put take. What I'm feeling and compare that to somebody else's apples and oranges. Not everybody would, is going to have the same that's effect. That's true. That's true. But you know, you would you would you would think a doctor would know this. Like well, the problem is MS is different from people to people and most doctors don't manage MS. Most regular doctors don't. And I was gonna say the first the first doctor I worked with after medical school, like proper, and, and she was in Phoenix, she has a private practice. She wouldn't prescribe anyone pain medication ever. Even if they had a legitimate cause, reason, and I think that's all, that's wrong. You know, someone with a broken bone deserves to have morphine or something to treat their pain. Um, but some doctors don't believe that. Well, you know what's funny is <clears throat> I find myself on both sides of this argument because on the patient end of it, as someone who feels chronic pain, I understand the need for relief the want for relief and knowing that you have a responsibility to be responsible on the other end of that i can understand where doctors come from is that one they don't want the guilt that they think that they're going to create a junkie by giving them medication but that could be ignorance for one two you have to know the person that you're dealing with which is kind of hard to do if you're seeing 30 plus patients a day or whatever your number is and then i've had close friends of mine who have dove head first into pain medication have gotten themselves addicted and seeing that whole process is, is an ugly thing to watch but we cannot allow something like that to stop us from being able to do what is right until we can find a better solution we have to use the one that's in front of us right now i mean yeah i honestly are you there yeah i'm still here okay you know you were like quiet i was like wait is he still here i thought you wanted to say something no uh no, you're right and uh the problem is the system went from one extreme to the other in the 80s i mean patients weren't getting prescribed medications to manage pain Everyone was saying they were in a lot of pain, and eventually the research caught up and said, hey, doctors are under-treating pain, and then it's gone to the other extreme. Now we're over-treating pain. Some people get ridiculous amounts of opioids when they probably don't deserve them, and it's it's very easy to, to fix out if you're trained well enough in the management of these medications. I am working in my hospital to 
make sure that pre that people are appropriately managed with you know yeah. a rigorous a, mo a rigorous protocol like hey here's how you assess patients with prescription opioids do this first do this second do this third and then you can figure out what group of opioids would best manage them if any at all people yeah. who have been addicted to opioids should never be treated long term on opioids end yeah. of story hey kev that's, kev, uh, that's the bottom wanna, line you know do you want do you do you want to tell them that one story you told me i mean i don't know if Wait, you want to hear something that's really depressing but um, just last year, there was a study in Boston where they looked at people who had experienced an opioid-related like incident, whether they stopped breathing, whether they you know they almost died, something like that. And when you say incident, do you mean uh, in the sense that you stopped breathing, like overdoses, or is this overdoses, yeah, like over allergic reactions, and all that lumped together as one? Overdoses, anything related to opioids, whether it was allergic reaction whether it was okay. an overdose, 80% okay. of the people who had experienced those things and were taken off opioids were eventually put back on opioids by someone in the state of Massachusetts within six months. Do you think those no. people should ever be put back on opioids? No. No, definitely not. But see, now here's, okay, here's what I'm going to propose to you. And this is, I know, conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory alarm is about to ring, but... I'm just going to put it out there because from a business perspective, this is where I see it. Now, I had a doc the doctor, I, I, the doctor that was prescribing medication and got popped for selling prescriptions when he was trying to get me off of the painkillers because he didn't want, and I quote, the guilt of prescribing them to me, even though I had a legitimate reason for them. He's like, why don't you go on methadone? Like, how about you go fuck yourself? You can keep your methadone. I get up. I go to my methadone program to get my meth. I drink my meth and I go make some money and I go whatever I can get high on. That's about it. Let's fucking get high. What else is there? But, so that brings me to this, which is, do you think that some of these doctors might go back and prescribe people that should never ever be given these opiates again because of the fact that there is such a system in place where okay now we'll get them on the pills and i understand real quick sidebar that this is a very dark way of thinking but I've watched many drug reps walk in and out of a doctor's office and it's disgusting the way that they just break down things. And I know I'm a bit all over the place, but just in the sense that the doctor will go, okay, this guy had a problem with opiates in the past. So, you know, we're just going to disregard that. We'll give it to them again. Worst case scenario, we have uh, Suboxone. And if that, when they can graduate from that, they can go to Subutex or they can go to Methadone. And then we could just keep on bringing that money in. But then also in conjunction with that, there's the jails and all the other stuff that goes along with it. But I mean, is it, is it done intentionally or is it just ignorance? Which I mean, granted, I know that that's not something you can answer because you're not one of those people. But do you think it's possible, being somebody who works in this type of field, that there are those kinds of guys out there, or women, that would... Definitely there are. Okay. That's not even a, like a question that takes me a second to think about. There are some people out there who just will throw pills at 
at a problem patient. There are yeah. patients that are extremely complex that have tons of medical issues. I mean, more so than what you have. And you have problems that would definitely qualify you for opioids. But some doctors, when it comes to that, they just would rather throw pills at the problem. Or let's say they have a patient who is addicted, who they kind of maybe will feel bad, like maybe I was part of the reason this patient's addicted, and they'll just keep giving them the prescriptions instead of actually giving them something that will help them long term. Right. Now, a lot of it is just, it's a, it, you have a patient who comes to your office who's always complaining and says, I need my Percocets. Give me my Percocets. And the yeah, doctors. Yeah, yeah, people like that, or, you know, or, or, or the reason why my friend gets the shit he does. And it pisses me off every time he tells me this shit. Do me a favor, yeah, Kev. I'm joking. Don't you keep telling me. I was going to say, do me a favor. Don't tell me anymore, but I'm joking. Keep You keep telling me. <laughs> but I was going to say, I mean, I was, I'll put this out there because I'm not ashamed of this. You know, I dabbled in the drug world. I experimented with certain things. I never touched heroin or ecstasy, though, but that's besides the point. I was lucky enough and unfortunate enough at the same time to be around people like I said before that abused these pills and I got to see what that does to a person the way that it changes their personality and their life and that a lot of the times that that's a hole that you can't dig yourself out of and I learned from that it it instilled in me to be responsible with these pills, I have people ask me all of the time, like, dude, you've been on these painkillers for eight years. How are you not addicted? I don't believe that you can not take them and not get sick. Yeah, like, see, dude- that's, that's, mm-hmm. sorry to interrupt you, but you know, but that's, that's, that's just a, like a stereotype, a bias. Sorry to disappoint you people, but some of those people exist. And, you know, yeah, you know I was... It's very simple. All you have to do, like, and I get that there's a difference between dependency and addiction, even though it might kind of be in a lane one right next to the other. I'm only taking it as it's prescribed to me. I get prescribed three pills a day. I'm not waking up in the morning and taking those three pills in one shot to feel all fucked up and and then going about my day. I'm taking it over a certain amount of time well kev 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 you know if i you know if i if i you know i'm you know i'm i want to i want to i want to tell uh this one story that you know that, that you told me that that i find hilarious uh you know stop me if uh you know you, you know it happened when you took a medical cab once and like you know i know i know you took medical cabs many times i know, I know who you're talking about and I, when I was talking about, when we were talking about the pills earlier, this chick popped into my head because yeah. the the fucking anger that I feel towards this shit. I, <clears throat> I had a doctor's appointment uh, last year in December. It's fucking snowing and shit. Medical cab comes and picks me up. The pain management doctor normally calls me and tells me if the doctor's not going to make it in. Because of weather, whatever the situation is. They didn't call. I assumed everything was still on. Hop in the medical cab. We go to pull into the doctor's parking lot. And then my phone rings and says the doctor's not going to be able to show up today. So don't bother coming in. I'm like, well, I'm already here. So what am I supposed to do? They're like, well, just go home. So the girl that was driving the medical cab... uh, 
chirps into her boss and is like, hey, man, you know, I have a patient here whose doctor called out at the last second. I have another person I'm supposed to pick up in five minutes. What am I supposed to do? So the boss comes back and says, well, tell him he's taking the ride with you for the day because you don't have time to go and drop him off back at his house. You have other people that need to be other places. Which, okay, fine. I'll go on an adventure. I'm okay with that. I wasn't really doing anything anyway. Yeah. So I wind up going all day with this lady and she's asking me about my situation and why am I going to the pain doctor and all this. So she has a bias towards painkillers because of the epidemic, obviously, but... Um, she's like, we're going to go to the perfect person today that I want you to meet, and maybe it'll change your mind about taking the medication. So we stop off at the methadone clinic to pick up this broad, and it they all look like zombies standing outside. It's insanity what the drugs do to you, but the girl hops in the car, and she's talking, and she's literally passing out mid-sentence, waking back up, continuing like nothing happened and just repeating the process so and the whole time there while we're going back to my house finally this is towards the middle of the afternoon on the way back she's talking about how she got addicted to painkillers because she was in a really bad car accident and she shattered her shoulder and needed reconstructive surgery and the doctor over prescribed her uh, Roxy 30s that she shouldn't have had but she was taking them because she thought that's what the doctor wanted her to do and then after a while uh, when she when the doctor wouldn't give her the dose that she wanted anymore she went out on her own and paid other doctors to get the amount that she wanted, went from doing that to doing heroin, but then gave the whole song and dance about how, you know, I'm clean now, I don't do any of that shit anymore, you know, everything is... Yeah, bullshit, is... sorry, I'm just, sorry to interrupt you, but I'm just saying bullshit because, because of what you just said she was doing in the cab. Jesus Christ. All right. I don't know, I didn't hear that's, the whole But, uh, Kevin, I have to actually say, I think you may have some misconceptions about addiction as well. Um, I see addiction patients every day and at the hospital and there's a huge misnomer, not just in the medical field, but in general, that addiction is some sort of like moral failing. It's not, it's, it's a disease. Well, no, I don't, addiction, just, no, 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 no. He, doesn't, he doesn't think it's a moral, moral give me, failing. Give me like well, 30 just, seconds. Give me like 30 ahead. seconds. I'll let you jump in, Kevin. Go ahead. But there is something that we don't completely understand and, that happens in the brain with addiction. People who are at risk for becoming addicted will become addicted regardless of what addictive substance you introduce them to, whether it's heroin, whether it's gambling, whether it's alcohol, whether it's tobacco, they have some addiction risk in their brain. People who don't have this risk will never become an addict. That's just, I think that's just a straight fact. To be fair, There are to people do... who can be on heroin for 60 years of their life and they're not addicted. They can just give it up the next day if they well, if they want to. RSC, to to, to be fair, to be fair, he knew that already. He, he you know, oh. he was he, you know, he wasn't a moral. He wasn't arguing. It was a moral failing. That's the society not, view. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was um, I, I was just gonna bring up real fast that, I mean, what you might be hearing is. 
there there could be a bias just because I've I've dealt with a couple of addicts that were very close like my my girlfriend's cousin and her aunt were both really bad into heroin so that brought we tried to help them you know brought them into our house and shit and that gave us a whole new set of problems so if you're picking up on anything it's probably the the anger over that i understand that it is a it is a sickness and a, a lot of people they can't i mean i've seen as you said i've seen gamblers and pill addicts cokeheads all of that stuff i've i've seen all the different varieties of things that people can get addicted to but there seems to be one common thread at least with most people not all of them but it seems like a lot of them are are trying to run away from something and like i know that in for her family the, it was it was abuse as children that they they were trying to escape from that i guess you know being introduced factor for addiction yeah Mm -hmm. so it's not that i understand i understand that society puts a label on it and says you're an addict you're a dirtbag nobody should ever have any sympathy for you and it's not that i believe that but it bothers me when somebody says oh yeah i'm clean and then when I go to get out of the car, you're chasing me down, asking me if I can find you Roxy 30s. Like, dude, I'm not going to help you kill yourself. I'm not yeah. going to do it. And that's what addiction yeah. is. It, it's a it's a slow form of killing yourself. It always is. But yeah. just, I mean, I think of it more so as akin to any other long-term disease. Addiction is a disease you carry with you for the rest of your life. Just as is high blood pressure, heart disease, those kind of things. I don't get mad at the patients when they forget to take their blood pressure medicine. I don't think I should get mad at the patient who's an addict that relapses. That's part of the cycle. Of, that's going to happen, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, that's they go through those stages of you know, relapse, recovery, and then remission, where they are able to maintain without the uh, addictive personality traits, without the cravings. The, and it's a process. It's not a short-term process. It's a long-term process. Yeah, it takes... Was- Four or five years to go from relapse back into remission and recovery. RSC, actually, no, to piggyback of that, I really love the people who look down on people who are addicted to Percocets or whatever the hell, but they smoke cigarettes, which is also an addiction. And real quick, I, you know, the other two things. The other bias is just the fact that those people make it more difficult for me to get treatment. Exactly. Because I get lumped into that, which granted, I have to let go of that anger because somehow, some way, a person that was not, we it seems like we forget that before there was an addict, there was a person. And I think a mm-hmm. lot of us lose sight of the fact that there was somebody there beforehand. And then the second thing is, do you think that it would be, would it be more beneficial to people who have these addictions if say for example if heroin was legal throughout the United States 
do you think that would help or would that hurt the patients that have these addiction problems? Not to say that you should advertise it like they do uh, weed shops in California, but just that like if you're going to relapse, it'd be better to do it under a doctor's care, no? If you make it legal, then we could, A, we could study it easily, more easily. We can figure out how the addictive mechanism works and figure out ways to combat it. And B, the problem that, the reason why people are dying isn't because they're getting heroin. The reason they're dying is because they're getting what they think is heroin and it's really fentanyl and they're overdosed on the fentanyl. Yeah, yeah. They, you know, they, 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 so if you make it dealers. legal, at least you're, you're preventing the people from dying and there's always another opportunity to get them into therapy, to get them on, you know, uh, the suboxone therapy to detox them and then get them into yeah, a but, maintenance. Program. Yeah, but see, RSC, they die immediately. Yeah, I know. But RSC problem with that is that when you make the argument that you want the, you know, the drugs to be legal, you know, somebody on the other side will be like, Oh, well you want them to be legal and overindulge and die that way. I'm like, what the fuck are they doing now? And besides, you're already think, overindulging and dying. I, yeah. You know what I think? You know what the problem is, dude? And it's sad that it just took me to realize this. They're never gonna. Nobody in the government is going to under. Like, you're not gonna get a senator to understand your it, your fight for wanting illegal drugs for these reasons, because because they've never. They they don't use them or they don't know that it would benefit people who are oh, addicted no, 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 like no, they no, don't no, even see any of that. No 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 Kev, Kev. I have to I have to stop you right there. Okay, where, where the fuck is that quote? I need to find that quote about that one asshole in like the sixties or seventies say, Oh, you know, oh you know, we we you know we knew drugs weren't bad, but you know, but we wanted to fuck over hippies and uh and uh, you know and black people. Where the fuck well, is I that, mean, that, that fucking quote? Heroin used to be sold over the counter by Bayer, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it did. Heroin and cocaine were both legal. Bayer works wonders. And there wasn't a huge drug problem at that time. I mean, do you there. think it was because it was legal that there was not a huge problem? And now well, I mean, maybe... I mean, yeah, part, part, of, part of it is the... Um... Forbidden fruit aspect. It's kind of not not the whole thing. Obviously, there's a lot of factors involved. Well, but the, yeah, the, the real problem is that the the laws that make it illegal create a black market, and when you create a black market, there's no regulation, which is why people have all this garbage mixed in with their heroin. Yeah, there are people that can use abuse heroin for 80 years. A lot of the people I treat, surprisingly, are over the age of 65, and they have addiction. And they're really? with us at, at our hospital. Yes. Uh, I would say about 60% of the people we see are over that age because they got, you know, started on the Percocets or whatever for the back pain they had at age 50. And eventually some doctor just said, you know what, I'm not going to give you these medicines anymore. Okay. And, and so they, they, went were, to the street drugs. They, they were looking to, to take care of the pain. And mm -hmm. heroin is the cheapest thing. It's easier to pay $10 for a bag of dope than it is to pay $80 for an Oxycontin. Okay. Kev, Kev, before, before we go on, I want to read this quote. Uh, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies. The anti-war left 
and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did! I hope you rot in hell, John! And whatever the fuck your last name is. Well, that God, that's just off. he can. So then that guy can thank him. We should all thank him for partially, I should say, for gang violence, the Bloods and the Crips ordeal. Because they, when the Black Panthers split apart, that's what became of that. And now instead of working because... as a collective, now they're no, no, fighting no. over turf. Exactly. The thing that gets me is it. Just because, just because some people were against the war and some people were black, that is why you stole all that shit? Dude, never I... underestimate the power of greed and ignorance. Never. Because it will prevail every single fucking time. But, but... Like, you have a dude like this that's in here now, who is a fucking doctor that is willing to treat his patients any way that he can. But he is limited to what he can do, even though he knows that I'm sure, and not to speak for you, but I'm sure that you know that there are certain, the way that states do things, there are certain, they, they could make improvements, and I'm sure there were things that you would do differently if you were given the chance, but you're stuck in this box of a specific way that you have to do it, even if it is to the detriment of one of your patients. Yeah, I, I can tell you a specific example. Like right now, I'm taking care of a gentleman like in his 60s, late 60s. He's been on an alcohol addict his entire life. He's been in and out of detox, in and out of rehab multiple times, probably 20, 25 times. I'm detoxing him from alcohol, and he's interested in taking naltrexone. I'm not sure if you're familiar with naltrexone, but it's one of the medications. I'm sorry, naloxone. Uh, you give it to people when they overdose on heroin. But some recent studies have said that if you give it to people who are trying to avoid alcohol, it actually helps fight their cravings for alcohol. Okay, now, I can prescribe that medication to him, though? No, I can't prescribe that medication because it's regulated. I can't give it to him. I was just going to say, before you go back to that, as far as I thought that Valium was used to treat people who were withdrawn from alcohol, is, is that true? That's true. That's, that's different, though. Withdrawing is different from fighting the cravings once he leaves the detox. He wants something okay. that's going to help him fight the craving for alcohol. And naltrexone might do that for some people, but I can't prescribe it to him because legally they said, no, you can't prescribe that to him. So wait a minute. They're, so their problem, if he's withdrawing, give him – if this specific drug would work, you can go ahead and give it to him because it will – it will aid in making him better. But once he leaves, what they're basically saying to you, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, is once he walks out that door, we don't care if he relapses because that's out of our control. Our only job is to try to aid him through a withdrawal and save his life. Outside of that... We, we, we do think other things outside of that. I'm recommending him to, you know... Uh, a rehab center that will watch him long-term or other things, but I specifically can't prescribe him this medication to go out on. I can give him no, all the that, other. 
that's what I mean. I don't mean when I said that. I'm not saying you. I'm saying the the health system in general is saying, look, these are the things that you can do. But as far as trying to, you can give them, you can recommend them to a rehab, and you can tell them to do the AAs and the twelve steps and all that stuff. But mm-hmm. outside of that, you legally cannot do anything except for watch that guy go in and out of your door if he's lucky enough to walk back into it the next time he does have a relapse. Now, I mean, there are some other drugs I could prescribe for him. He doesn't want those. He wants to try the naltrexone because A, it, it's very safe and B, it has no, almost no side effects. And actually, okay. if, you go to, if you go to Europe, you can buy that medication in the pharmacy without a prescription, but they won't let you prescribe it here in the U.S. without a prescription. And you have to get special certification to prescribe it, which doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's why over did... the counter in most of the most of the world. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that's that makes no sense. What? Oh, sorry, RSD, you're making my brain hurt. Sorry, yeah, it makes <laughs> well, my brain he, hurt too. You actually just brought up something that made me made me think of kratom, but I'll I'll get to that in a in a second. <laughs> by the way, but. Uh, uh, by the way, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Kev. By the way, uh, you know, going back to that one guy, it wasn't ignorance. He knew, he knew perfectly well that he was lying about the drugs. So it wasn't ignorance on his part. Yeah, but I was gonna say with the with these medications, with the other medications you were talking about that this guy didn't want, it sounds a lot like to. It sounds a lot like the MS treatments in a, a certain kind of a way. Like I guess. He's you, but you guys both talk and discuss the treatment options, and through letting him know what's going on, like this is the best drug for you. Now, you, I understand you legally, you can't go. Well, you know, if you were to happen to get it from somewhere in Europe and treat yourself with it, you know, I, not, nothing I can do about that. Yeah, I mean, that's not, that's not. I'm not bound if this guy can get that prescription for Canada, or get that medication from Canada or other places that sell it. But it seems ridiculous that a drug that's been shown to be so good for people who have this problem, it, and that's so it's so benign in terms of you can't overdose on it. It has relatively no side effects. It's over the counter in most of the world. It, here, it's like heavily guarded. You have to have special training to prescribe it, and it doesn't make any sense. So it's like stem cells in a way that America looks at stem cells where you can go to another country and it's not, it's still expensive in other places. It's just not a, as a big deal there as it is here. It also, in retrospect, listening back to this, it reminds me an awful lot of medical marijuana and the fact that you need to be trained specifically and go get a license because not only do patients need to get a license but the doctors need to get a license to be able to prescribe it and uh, granted I don't know much about the drug that this guy is talking about but there seems to be similarities in the fact that both of them are heavily guarded there are little to no side effects in comparison to the other drugs that are widely available and for some reason this country unlike other parts of the world just does not want to budge on this war at all yeah but i mean there are ethical issues with stem cells as well i mean 
in some parts of the world, those stem cells may have been stolen from the donor without their permission. You know, you have to have permission from the donors and all that other kind of stuff. So, but there's legal things too that have made it difficult in the past for stem cells. I've heard things about it, but I just wasn't, I'm not too familiar with it, but I've heard rubblings about stem cells. So I, I would just thought I would bring it up. I, I wanted to mention uh, Kratom, if that's even how you, you say it, while we're okay. in here on the subject of this, because you seem like the, if anybody would know, you would probably be somebody who is in the know, is somebody that treats people with addiction and other things. Um, this seems to be a very popular thing now that I, from what I understand that this plant is related to the opioid in some way, it connects on to the receptors in your brain, yet somehow these smoke shops that sell vape pens and quote unquote CBD products can now sell this Kratom shit. But is that... Is that an effective treatment for somebody to use that's not even necessarily addicted? Like, let's just say, for example, the doctor takes me off of my pills tomorrow and I'm looking for something that could similarly manage my pain. Is that a safe route to go down or is it that we, do, we still don't know enough collectively about this drug that it really should not be sold as loosely as it's being sold while there is such a big deal being regulated about pot, which I understand is its own argument by itself. But Kratom is a schedule one drug. That was a, a recent change, like in 2017, I think. It's just uh, a tree from Asia. It's not regulated by the FDA here in the U.S. So whatever you're buying at the head shops, I'm not sure what you're actually getting. There's no way for me to have any kind of uh, certainty that you're getting something that's of quality. That uh, There have been a number of outbreaks linked to Kratom use here in the U.S., and some of them have been lethal. Uh, in terms of how it helps, yeah, it does help people. We know, I think, both Midnight or Athena and I know someone in our community who uses Kratom for pain, specifically for muscle pain. And they say it works great, but he's aware that it's risky buying it from the head shops because you don't know what actually is in the pill. I don't think, I don't you're think have I, a bad reaction to it. I don't think I know who that is. Maybe you can, you can DM it to me later. I, I don't know. It, like, I mean, you know who the person, you know, the person, uh, maybe you don't know who it, that he's taking this. But there definitely is someone in the community that is taking that. Yeah, no, I know. I'm just trying to figure sport. out who. Uh, uh, you know, just just tell me on Discord later. I, right now, I yeah, can't. It, uh... it has some. It has some other side effects, some psychoactive effects. It can uh, produce like withdrawal type symptoms if you take too much of it for a long time. It can become physically addicted to it. So I mean, it needs to be studied more. I, I can't tell you a lot more than that. We don't know how best to prescribe it, how best to use it. The people who are using it are basically just playing by ear at this point in time because yeah. there's no information I could give them to say, hey, here's how you should use it. You take it three times a day, two times a day, take one pill, two pills. I don't know. Wait, so does that, as a doctor, does, does something like that bother you that they're able to, like places like GNC and these head shops, that there are so many unregulated drugs 
And even the ones that are regulated, you know, you'll see a commercial fucking 10 years down the line. Like now they're running commercials on Leviquin about how it, it's bad for you. That if you've taken it and you've had this to happen or that happen, you could have a lawsuit. I mean, but does it does it bother you as a doctor who's trying to help people that it it always seems like there's every day that you wake up there's a new thing that people can shoot smoke sniff or swallow that's going to get them into some sort of an issue but even outside of that because we all are our own worst enemies most of the time either it's drugs caffeine or whatever but just the fact that there is like you're put in this tiny box and they say you can only do this list of things yet on the other side there's head shops that are selling who the fuck knows what in these bottles and yet you have to be restricted does that aggravate you or is that something that you've just learned to accept as like well this is what I have to do if I want to be able to treat my patients to the best of my ability I'm sure it's a mixture but I'll let him answer I mean, I want to give people the best um, advice I can give them. And I think, obviously, the best advice is to go with what you know in terms of the things that are FDA regulated. You know they meet certain criteria. And you know that if someone doesn't, if there's something that goes wrong with those products, there are legal mechanisms for your patients to get compensated, like compensation. If your product is FDA approved and something goes wrong with that product, you know that they can sue in court. They'll have standing. The patients will be reimbursed for their suffering, for you know, their, whatever they lose. The stuff that's in the head shops, you probably will never see any kind of compensation for the people who overdose on Kratom, for the people who die from taking that K2. I mean, I've seen it. Those people they hit, develop seizures. They bleed into their brain. They die miserably, and there's very little I can do to save them. And you uh... think that they can sue anyone? This the family can me. recoup anything? No, they can't. But at least with that FDA backing, I know there's at least some guarantee of quality of those products, and I know that there's always going to be a legal recourse for patients if something bad does happen. Well, I you know, I find it interesting that you you just happen to bring up K two because I know I know for a long time there were people that were using K2 uh, or Spice and bath salts, but, um, fuck, now I just completely, I completely lost what the fuck I was going to say. God damn it. That's <laughs> right. Uh, Wait, I think that's what it was. Never mind. You, you brought up K2, so that reminds me of when, <clears throat> when the doctor... And I'll get to K2 in a second because that shit really, it, it bothers me. It just, just don't rub me right. But when I, went in, when I went to talk to the doctor in the pain management office that I'm seeing now, they gave me paperwork to sign. And they were like, if, if you want to go on the medical program, <laughs> look over these papers and make sure that you understand all of it before you sign or whatever. So when I was looking it over, it... It says on there that even though it's being prescribed by a doctor, that the, the marijuana is not, that the FDA takes no responsibility for any of it, and that if something bad were to happen to you because of these treatments, that you can't, it's not the doc, you're doing it at your own risk. 
basically yeah, what they're saying. The, mar- the marijuana can't be uh, approved by the FDA because it's still federally illegal. You're right. Uh, the states do take responsibility when they allow for it. So the states that actually regulate that do have to take responsibility should you say something get mixed in with the marijuana. Um, Which, but I've never heard of anyone dying from marijuana. Well, no, so, no, no. no but, yeah, there was only one, Roku, not to cut you off, dude, but there was only, there was one story <laughs> that I heard from Montel Williams. I think he went in front of the Senate or somebody out in California because there was uh, some asshole, I guess, that either made a mistake or intentionally spiked the weed with butane that he'd gotten from his dispensary. And he went in front of the Senate a few years back to try to argue with them that they need to have strict regulations on shit like this because somebody could kill themselves. But, I mean, outside of that, dude, I have been, there have been times where I have literally smoked so much weed I went sober. And I don't think <laughs> there's another drug in the world that you can do that with that you wouldn't overdose and well, die on. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, you know, I remember, I remember, you know, there was, there was like, there was like two, two stories I remember reading. You know, one of them, one of them was about synthetic marijuana, you know, made in China or whatever the fuck, you know, you know, where, where, where this one guy went fucking insane and killed his, I think he killed his girlfriend or chopped her off and then tried to cut his, I don't know, it was a strange thing, but, you know, it was synthetic. Or the stories that came out of Florida where people were smoking uh, they call it spice down there, but basalt. I think it's pretty or basalt. Yeah, that they were eating, people were eating other people's faces off and shit. Like insane. Yeah, I do, 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 do. Another, another thing. I wish I could fucking find, but I remember reading a story a couple of years ago where the cops were called at this one house, and you know the 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 guy was so high that you know that he shot himself. In the ass, and he said his dog did it. It's like that's beautiful. You can continue. I was just, I was just saying that's beautiful. I find that yeah. hilarious. That you know, my my dog shot me in my ass because I was so fucked up on whatever it is that I was doing that I didn't realize I didn't put my gun away. Pro- but matter of fact, how the hell do you even shoot yourself in your own ass? That that has to be. That had to, I I would like to have seen how he managed to pull that one off. I think we're dying. Oh, how much did you guys have? Uh, I I don't know. We made brownies, and I think we're dead. I really do. Well, I mean, like I said, marijuana is very safe. It is safer than almost any other drug I can think of, other than oh no. I can't think of a drug that's safer than marijuana. Actually, I I've never heard of anyone dying from marijuana. I've never heard of anyone have. I mean. Uh, it can cause seizures, but mm, the people don't usually die from those kind of seizures. And you have to smoke a, a, a ton of it. It can make people nauseous. It can give people problems. Um, whether it causes cancer or not, I don't know if there's evidence for me to say one way or the other. Uh, but for the most part, I don't think I've ever heard of anyone killing themselves from smoking too much marijuana. Time is going by really, 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 really slow. Okay, well, I'm on the phone with you. And you don't, do, you don't, do you know how much of it you bought and put in the brownies? Pardon? How much did you buy? I don't. I, just please send rescue. They're on the way, but I'm trying to figure out how much you bought and put into the brownies, sir. Probably like a quarter ounce total. A quarter ounce total into yeah. the brownies? Did you guys eat all the brownies? Yeah, we did. I mean, I think as far as cancer goes, you can contribute, to, and I've been guilty of using cigars 
in the past to, you know, champ them out, empty out all the tobacco and roll the weed up in that. Or using, even using the lighter, you're inhaling the butane and all that bullshit into your lungs, which is not good for you. But it's just sad that we're not able to even just sit down collectively as a people and have the federal government look at this drug and go, okay, look, on one hand, we're, we're prescribing people all different types of antidepressants and whatever else, you know, anti-anxiety medicines and painkillers that are fucking a lot of people up, but we're not going to allow you to have a simple plan that a lot of people would probably much more than taking these pills. But that... It does bring me to another question of, <clears throat> as somebody who is a doctor, do and feel free to not answer this if it's if it's too personal. But do you feel pressure from pharmaceutical companies or drug reps to prescribe certain medications for certain illnesses? But yeah, hold on. Let me let me actually let me actually find that article about a dog shooting himself in the with a guy shooting himself in the ass, and then you know the cops are blaming weed. Oh, he was so high. My comment to that was like, you know, you know what, you know what, what, which strain was it? What was it laced with? You know what I mean? Where can I get some of that shit? <laughs> no, no, I don't want to yeah. want that. I don't, I don't want to shoot myself in the ass and then blame my dog. But the guy the was the best part of it. The best part of the whole story is the entire time he never even had a dog. <laughs> yeah. But Kevin, yeah, actually, no, I don't feel any pressure from uh, drug companies in terms of prescribing. The pressure comes from the insurance companies. When the insurance companies say, we'll cover this drug, but not this drug, when they do the exact same goddamn thing. And if I prescribe the drug that the insurance company doesn't want to cover, then the patient has to pay out of pocket, and they may end up paying three, $400 a month for that medicine and most patients can't afford that so i'm forced to use the medicine that the insurance company is telling me to use right see i i understand what you're saying there completely because i i'm taking uh soma or the generic uh, carissa protol and two years ago the insurance company just woke up one day and decided that they just were not going to cover it anymore that mm -hmm. i choose from one of these three other drugs and if i didn't want that then i would have to pay out of pocket luckily for me the out-of-pocket price is only fifty dollars but it is in a person in my financial situation it is a struggle to even come up with fifty dollars a month to throw out for the pills but it's insane that they can just go oh well, we got we decided to go into business with a, a different drug dealer because we got a better okay. deal on percentages yep. or whatever it exactly is that. I, I mean you understand the uh, complexities of health insurance here in the u.s very well because you've been you've been put through the worst of it is what it sounds like yeah definitely i, I wish there was something i could do to help you i mean <laughs> um it is a terrible feeling to feel kind of powerless that i don't get to make these changes but at the same time the medications most of the time, I mean, 80% of the time, even if you do switch a patient from one blood pressure pill to another that's covered, there usually isn't a big, you know, fight back on it. There usually isn't a problem. But with someone with your special case, I mean, they've probably worked through a lot of medications to find you one that works well enough 
to make you functional. And then the insurance companies are going to uproot all that hard work and make you start over guessing which pill is going to work for you. That's just not fair. Definitely. But then there's also the fact that, I mean, dude, I'm going to be completely honest with you, man. I, the muscle relaxers help, but they scare me. And I'll, I'll tell you why they scare me, dude. It's because of the fact that, you know, I find that the tolerance for the muscle relaxers is building way faster than the painkillers. Like, I've, I've been on the Percocets for solid seven or eight years. And I've still, I, I started out at five milligrams of Percocet twice a day. Here I am seven or eight years later, and I'm only now, just this month, I got bumped up to uh, four 10-milligram Percocets a day. Whereas now with the muscle relaxers, I'm taking uh, three 350-milligram <laughs> somas mm-hmm. at a time. And that, that scares me more just because it seems like uh, they say that the opiates are harder, but... This is a situation where I wish I'd be able to fall back onto the weed because I feel like in this sense that the muscle relaxers are just a little bit more dangerous because of what they, the fact that you have to, you get used to them so quickly. You tolerance. Your body develops yeah. tolerance. I mean, unfortunately, I think you have to uh, go with what the, the physicians are giving you right now because that's what they are experienced at offering. It is difficult to tell a doctor, hey, I know you've never prescribed this uh, this other medication or you never prescribed marijuana, but I want you to prescribe it for one person. They may not feel comfortable giving that medication because they may not know anything about it, uh, to be honest. There's so much out there that, you know, to know about in medicine. I don't think you could fault anyone for not being an expert in every goddamn thing. Well, yeah, no, of course not. And the doctors that I have talked about, uh, marijuana with were fairly honest with me, which was actually surprising. My mm-hmm. regular doctor had said, "Like, look, man, I'm I'm trying, I'm trying to get a license to uh, write it out for patients, but it's not cheap and it's not easy, so it's going to take a long time." And the neurologist that I spoke with, the last one that I went to, he just straight up was like, "Listen, dude, I could." Tomorrow, I could go out and get a marijuana license. I just, I don't want to. Because then I'm only going to get patients that are going to want to come to my office because I have the ability to give them marijuana and not because I can treat them for any type of um, exact neurological disorder. Yes, exactly. It it makes sense for him. Again, it's a personal thing. If some people think it's not moral to prescribe marijuana, I would disagree with that. But I mean, they have the right to their own medical opinion. Definitely. And I think that's the other thing that I think needs to happen, too, is I, I personally, at least in my experience, I feel like there's not enough communication between patient and doctor and then patient and doctor to government. I think if we were all able, which I know this is a fairy tale that will never happen, but I think if doctors and patients were able to get together and then we were able to combine, go to the government and say, listen, these are things that, these are the variety of my patients, 
my patients have testimonials that they can give to you here we would like to plead our case to try to make it a little bit easier because not everybody is the same and if we can help even a couple of people by doing this then we're making our state and our country a better place to live yep exactly i agree with you i think sometimes the government's the problem Again, I don't understand. I mean, it, I I hate to believe this, but I think it's honestly what it is, is that it just, for them, I think it comes down to the dollars and cents of it all. Like, if you look at, <clears throat> I'm not sure where you're from, but our last governor here in New Jersey, Governor Christie, made, not to bring it to marijuana again to beat a dead horse, but just as an example, uh, he created quote-unquote a medical marijuana program which was ridiculous and completely out of the reach to 90% of the people who live in this fucking state uh, but then you co you come to find out that you know he was endorsed by companies that make chemo and radiation treatments and also given money to from the Dallas Cowboys in the NFL who are also have a strict policy against marijuana and just using that as an example you know is it, it it seems like it is the dollars and cents of it all that they care more about a profit margin than they do about the people who not only put them into positions of power but also the the people that they swear when they put their hand on top of the bible whether they believe in god or not being irrelevant but that they swear to help these people when they take office yet they seem to do the exact opposite when somebody brings them a big cardboard check mm -hmm. well trust me kevin you're not the only one uh, i've heard similar stories before from other patients and um you know my heart goes out to you uh, i hope that the healthcare system gets more easy for you and other people like you to navigate and not only navigate but i hope they do a better job at treating all the problems that you have well, I can say that the the one good thing from me going through all of this is that now when I see somebody running into similar problems that I've run into in the past, I can at least guide them to give them a little bit of help to get through some of it to make it a little bit easier for them so that they don't have to walk in completely blind like I did and figure it all out for themselves. But, you know, I mean... I think that we'll, I think we'll improve eventually, it, it's only a matter of time, and it's just, we have to be open to wanting to communicate with one another, and it needs to be more on a personal level instead of in a Twitter type of a way where there there is no repercussions for the things that you say, and you, you, you actually can, like a doctor has to look you in your face and you have to look at the doctor and they can be able to tell whether you're bullshitting them or not or when you can present a record that that shows you that you know, I've never had any type of issue with drugs or anything like that because that that's the only way that we're going to get this conversation started but yet you know if you try to bring it up it's almost like they treat you like you're at least in my experience, there have been a couple of doctors that kind of treated me like a child where they just pat me on the head and they go, well, that's a really sweet thought that you have there, sweetheart, but 
we're in the real world and shit does not work that way. You know, like, yeah. we're... Money runs this shit, motherfucker, so unless you can take your hopes and dreams and shove them up your ass, because unless you're going to cut me a check, nothing I can do for you. I, I got to get, I got to keep my lights on, too, and feed my kids and myself, so I can't even, the worst part is I can't even really be mad at them. No, I mean, you, you should not feel like you're handcuffed based on what doctors are telling you. If you don't think that they're treating you right, capitalism allows you can go pick someone else. Write them a bad review. I mean, there are plenty of things you can do to uh, to vent and get your opinion out there. Because if someone is an asshole, and I know a lot of people who treat their patients like assholes, I don't know why their patients keep coming back to them. You know, if I think a lot gonna of sit and, and bitch at you like you're a little kid and not treat you like an adult with respect. Why are you letting them do that to the next person and the person behind, you know, after you? I think it's a, I think it's a combination of things. I think one of those things is intimidation. Like, because I understand you're a doctor, you've seen however many people a day, right? But when you're, and I don't know if you're, that, that's a good question for you too, which I'll, I'll ask you first before I go and dive into this, is I know as a patient, when I go into the office for the first time, or even if I'm going into an office with a doctor that I've dealt with before, I'm, I'm always nervous. I don't know why, but I always just, I'm always afraid that something, you guys are, you make your living, unfortunately, having to give bad news of some kind most of the time. But, but do you ever feel on the reverse side of that, as a doctor, do you ever get nervous going into a room when you're looking over a patient's chart before you open that door? Is there something that you might see on that chart that just kind of makes your stomach drop for a second? Or is it just, I'll go in there, I do what I have to do, and then I'm just on to the next person without really having to worry about it? Not saying in the sense that you don't care, but just that you have to, I would imagine you would have to disassociate yourself a certain amount to be able to do your job effectively. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people give that advice that, hey, you have to dissociate from the people you're caring for in order to not let it get to you as a physician. You know, people don't want to see physicians be emotional or react badly to bad news. I don't think that way. Um, although I don't think I would ever cry in front of a patient just because that's not my personality. Uh, I'm not that emotional for most things. Um I do try to be empathetic and I try to be very practical and understanding with people. Most people don't have the vast depth of health literacy that you do, Kevin. You know a lot about medicine and health and not being someone who works in the field. Most people don't have the ability to comprehend the topics that we're talking about. So I like to talk to them at the level that they appreciate. That is why I said that is why I said Kevin is intelligent. He's, he's only he's only limited by you know he's only limited by his multiple sclerosis, other factors. Other than that, could have been a fucking scientist in a in another life. He could still be if that's what he wants to do. But I mean, I think my point was that like even when I try to talk to like the flat Earth people or the the crazy religious fanatics, like. The best place to start is a place where you can both communicate to each other, not past each other. I always encourage patients, you know, 
ask me the questions that you have, but I don't want to make it feel like, you know, I'm interrogating them. I want to use language that they're used to, not language that I'm used to, because I could list off tons of jargon that I'm very comfortable in talking, terms I'm comfortable using when I'm talking to someone else who's a doctor or a nurse or some, someone that understands that lingo. I just want to talk like a common person. I'm talking to someone like you, Athena, I mean, whoever. I want to communicate directly with that person, and, and that's the key. And I think you pointed that out, Kevin. A lot of doctors lack that ability, and I agree 100%. That's one of the things I'm working on at my hospital is, is educating the physicians that are there working right now and educating the residents who are being taught how to become physicians in the future, how to communicate effectively with patients of all backgrounds. See, that's a good thing, and I don't think that, that I commend you for doing that, but I don't think that that happens very often, unfortunately. Maybe it's a combination of schedule and also just I don't want to take responsibility for another doctor, whatever whatever the case may be there. But, mm-hmm. you know, do you... I understand you said that a lot of people don't, they don't understand the ins and outs of a lot of these issues that we're speaking of. But is it, as somebody that works in this field, does it, does that bother you that they don't understand? Or have you guys just, as, as doctors, learned to accept that healthcare in general is just a very difficult thing to get around and that, at the end of the day, maybe most people, and I, I guess a lot of them do have their own reasons. Either they think it's too complicated, maybe they're afraid to dive into it because of once you know something, it's especially when it comes to healthcare, it's almost like if you, you have an ailment and then you Google it on uh, WebMD and then you have a whole bunch of information that you just, you can't forget about. But I mean, you know, is it is it more helpful when a patient is aware of what goes on or would you rather that you're able to teach them step of the way as you're going through treatments and go over everything like what is the what is the preferred method for for you i really think it's patient dependent some people don't want to know anything and that's fine if they just want me to prescribe them medications tell them what they should and shouldn't do to live a healthy lifestyle and they don't care about the minutia, I'm perfectly fine dealing with them in that way. But if someone wants to do the research and read up on subjects, and they want to know a lot about their illness, like how you want to know about MS and about the treatments, I think that's a really wonderful thing too. I just think it should be tailored to the personality of the patient. That makes sense. I can definitely see that happening and uh, the other i know I'm, I'm hitting you with uh tons of questions hopefully i'm not killing you but i mean it's not very often that i can speak with a doctor or somebody in this field for this amount of time and be able to go in depth with them because a lot of the times we we do have to try to keep things short some people some doctors seem to get a little bit um they're bothered by the fact that i'm asking a lot of questions or i'm trying to understand things but i also i do realize that it is their job too and there are days just because the guy's a doctor 
doesn't mean that maybe he didn't get laid last night and he got into an argument with his wife or his husband when he got up in the morning and then sat in a half hour of traffic to get in the office and the first person that he ran into, the patient was an asshole, the nurse is in a mood, there's all different types of things that are happening. So I understand there's outside influences as well, but I know that before you said that there were issues with um, the insurance company as far as them limiting you to what you can prescribe by what they'll cover. And I know that case by case, depending on what the, uh, the patient is able to pay for. But do you guys, do you find yourself um, trying to fight the insurance companies most of the time? I mean, that's one thing I've always been curious about is are you able to, as a doctor, when they say we're going to decline paying for this medication, unless you can give us a prior authorization or tell us why this patient needs this medicine like if a patient if a patient needed penicillin and for whatever reason the insurance company did not want to cover it they only wanted to give people cipro instead but you feel that your patient would be better receptive to penicillin do you actually get to speak with somebody high up in the insurance company and work it out through them is there a hierarchy or do you deal with them the same way that we do where you have to call the 800 number on the back go through the automated system and and hit a low level person and just try to deal with them on that level it's it's very similar um and that's this is where it just it comes in really handy knowing what insurance the patient has when you start talking with them you know what the games each insurance company plays but if a patient's Medicare, Medicaid, there's a very standard procedure on how to do that. And it's mainly just paperwork based. So Medicare, Medicaid patients are usually generally easier to take care of in terms of getting them the medicine you want. But the problem is they don't you, don't, you don't get paid as much for managing them. For the insurance companies, it's exactly as you say. Uh, if you have a good reason why you think a patient should get this medicine, but the insurance company is denying it, you have to do what's called a peer-to-peer where you talk to a doctor that works for the insurance company and you have to lay out all the documentation you've done and usually with an insurance company you have to know what their preferential list of medications are so like if someone's a diabetic and you want to give them and I want to give them this new diabetes medicine and they're gonna say hey why didn't you why don't you give them insulin instead I have to document saying that okay we've tried insulin the insulin has either caused them problems they've become sick on it and they get really low blood sugars or for some, it doesn't help with their overall blood sugar control. I have to document a lot of visits and reasons why they should be on this medication that I failed their preferred medications before they'll consider something else. And even if I do all that documentation, it's not guaranteed they're even going to cover it. They may say, well, it's nice that you like that medicine. We're going to recommend you give your patient this one still. And that's all we're going to cover. And that's the end of the discussion. So, so some doctors will fight for the patient. Some some doctors will say there's no point because I already know what medicine they're going to tell me to use next, and they just go to that medicine instead of doing the pre-off for it. Right, because at the end of the day, they're they're going to make you. They want you to be the bad cop to have to walk into the 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 patient's room and say, uh, "Sorry, but." You know, I, I tried, man. Insurance company just won't do it. There's, there's nothing I could do. 
and then in turn your patient gets mad at you when really you're like dude we're fighting it we're fighting the same fight but they don't they don't realize that because they're not there and i know that you know i did bring up drug reps before this bothered me i recently i got sick bronchitis that time of the year starting to get cold or whatever uh I'm in the doctor's office and I have my earbuds in and I see these two guys and when I see these do these drug reps man they're like the way that they dress is the same way that you know when a Jehovah's Witness or whoever is coming to knock on your door to hand you a flyer you, you see that they're coming a million miles away but they walk into the office and say to the doctor or the receptionist rather all right we need we need Dr. So-and-so uh, who is a nurse practitioner to sign off for the head doctor in the building to prescribe patients this medication. You know, um, I don't understand, like, what is it that they are, what is it that they are doing? Is, are they actually, are they selling drugs directly from the manufacturer or are they there on behalf of the combination of the drug manufacturer and the insurance company to have the doctor just sign a piece of paper that they might have negotiated a deal with previously but now they just need a hard signature on a paper to be able to <coughs> cut the deal to make it final i don't think uh most drug reps come in for doctor signatures. They just come in really to advertise their drug product in person, uh, which obviously that may affect how people prescribe, but it is very nice and very convenient. I must say for someone to come in who knows a lot more about the medicine than I do, because they, they, they're like gurus of one medication and they can come in and, and ask, I can ask them questions and I can say, okay, I know that you're selling like Xarelto, this new blood thinner. Which which insurance companies aren't going to give me a hard time prescribing for patients? Which insurance companies will? And that gives me a little bit of a better idea of how I can prescribe that medication for patients. And it's very nice in case I do have some complicated patients like um, patients who aren't HIV medications. Uh, there are new HIV medications that come out all the time. Some patients are on the newer ones. And if I see that a patient of mine has been prescribed a new HIV medication that I'm not too familiar with. I can always ask this drug rep about either the HIV medication, if they're the representative for that medicine, or the other doctor or the other rep for the other medicines that that other patient is taking. I can say, hey, you know, Bob, I know that you represent Xarelto. I have a patient who's taking this medicine and I'm thinking about giving them Xarelto. What can you tell me about how they interact with each other? Are there any problems? And if the drug rep doesn't know, they are in connection with the scientist who made the drug. So I can talk to them directly to the people who made the drug in terms of the PhDs and all those kind of people. They'll get me a, you know, a phone call or an email or something where I can get the answers I need that aren't necessarily available online. I do think it's a good thing, but you shouldn't be as a physician. I don't think I should ever buy in stock for pharmaceuticals or, HMOs or insurance companies. I think that's an ethical violation. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I, I personally would never be influenced by a drug rep on what to prescribe for my patients. It's always going to be what's best for them. 
above whoever comes to visit me in my hospital or my office. That's crazy. I didn't know. And that, that's great that you are like that, though, by the way, because I'm sure there are a lot of doctors out there who are like, oh, fuck it. I'll take the paycheck. Give me whatever you want. Hand me all the samples. I'll take them all. And they're yeah. rolling around in their and office. The samples like, are very nice, too. And sometimes like, they'll give um, discount cards for the patients where, like, patients can get a drug that normally costs two or $3,000 for, like, 20 bucks a month. For like three or four months and hey if the patient's only gonna be on the medicine for two months that's great that's that's a way to get them a really good medicine that doesn't have a lot of side effects it normally is very expensive but for a reduced price and of course this is a conversation you have with patients say hey, i'm considering giving you this new drug here are the pro and cons of this drug here's the drug that your your insurance is going to cover at the normal price but i have this you know get it out of jail free car when it comes to the cost what do you think uh, I like to get input from my patients and what they'll take because some of the patients, they don't want to check their blood sugars three times a day, you know, for the insulin. Well, what am I supposed to do? I can't have them shooting up insulin blindly. So I'll say, okay, let's compromise. You check your blood sugar once in the morning. And then based on that number, here's how much insulin you take and then to cover them for the whole day. And I'll tell them, Hey, this is, isn't the best way to handle this. You're going to have, you know, it's not going to be managed well, but at least this is better than nothing. Right, because is it is that because of the fact that the the levels of blood pressure can vary minute to minute? It's not something as yeah, simple as blood pressure. The blood pressure, you just want the average blood pressure, like when you're asleep, to be like less than 130, around 120. That's the best. That's That's associated with less risk for heart disease and stroke and those kind of things that are going to, you know, kill people. Or make them have very low quality of life. I want to do so with a, prevent that. With a low blood pressure, like if I'm walking around and my blood pressure is in the area that you just mentioned, with a heart rate around forty, and you know, like I'm, I'm told that that's normal, but I kind of feel like maybe that's a little bit, it's a little bit off. But what could be some of the the reasons why? something like that could happen and well you know what scratch that even said that i'd actually like to go back to the diabetes thing that you uh mentioned just briefly about patients not wanting to really check their insulin i mean it, it if they're still having to cut their fingers for the sample of blood that shit hurts and i can understand why People don't want to do it. At the risk of sounding like a fucking pussy, to quote Jen's grandmother when she was alive, she decided one day that she was going to check my blood sugar. And let me tell you something, dude. I don't give a fuck what nobody says. That shit hurts. Yeah, it's only a little cut, you bitch. Don't worry about it so much. I have to do this shit three times a day. Well, look, man, I'm not a fucking soldier like you, okay? Fuck out of here with your glorified paper cut, motherfucker. <laughs> Aside from the fact that it is an inconvenience and a daily reminder that they do have... Nobody wants to be reminded the second they wake up in the morning that they have a disease, but unfortunately, that's the cost of doing business. But is there, is there something that is either in the works or that has already come out to try to help patients with those type of disorders so that they don't have to necessarily uh cut their fingers raw that they can that there's 
different method that could be just as effective to test for insulin levels. That's really nice that you brought that up. Uh, both my parents are diabetics. Um, and there is actually a new system. Um, it's called long-term glucose monitoring. But basically they put like a little computer chip in, in your body near the blood and it measures the sugar in your blood moment to moment. And you can just literally wave your smartphone near the chip in your, they usually put it like in your arm or something, somewhere convenient. And it will tell you what your blood sugar is right then, right there. And it'll keep a track. It'll graph your blood sugar throughout the day. That's very convenient. There's no more sticking or pricking involved with that device. Problem is insurance companies won't pay for that for most people. You have to have really, really bad control of your diabetes or meet other criteria and they'll allow you to try it for a while, but they won't pay for it long-term. I think that's the next, that's the solution to the diabetes conflict. Uh, that, and then there's this new thing called uh, aerosolized insulin. Uh, just imagine, you know how um, asthma patients take their inhalers? Well, they have an inhaler for insulin now. You can inhale your insulin. Very safe. Um, it can be dosed appropriately. So if you need to take more insulin because your blood sugar is a little high, you could dose it higher or lower. Very convenient. You just can't use it if you're smoking because they don't know what, if that affects it at all. Holy shit. We're definitely going to have to. I had. I have a couple of questions about that because I've never heard that before. That is extremely interesting. But So what you're saying is that this thing is basically a microchip that they stick in your arm and you wave your cell phone over where the microchip is implanted and it gives you second by second or minute by minute levels of your insulin. Do the insurance companies not want to cover this because it goes back to cost of, you know, if in the sense that like, if I, I can go back to an old Chris Rock joke that I used to uh, compare a lot of different things, but he was talking about how, you know, you mean to tell me you can make a spaceship that can fly around the moon, but you can't, uh, make me a Cadillac with a fucking bumper that doesn't fall off. Like, this is the same type of thing where we could pay for that microchip, but then maybe you only have to get it replaced, say, every six years versus well, if you... Well, not, you can get it replaced every month, but it's, it's, it's painless. I mean, I don't think that the, the blood sugar picking that you do three times a day is necessarily that painful. Uh, the needles are so tiny, they're like less than the width of a hair now. The one that Jen's grandmother used on me was about as wide as the end of a pen that you write out of before it goes up. The little piece that sticks out at the bottom where the thing comes out. I don't know words. You know what I'm trying to say, hopefully. Um really crazy how small they made these needles i was actually going to ask you about that because when uh my girlfriend's grandmother was alive this was back in the early 2000s she actually she was showing me how she has to do her diabetes shit and it, the thing that she pulled it's out looked almost like it looked like a fucking razor blade how thick this thing was <laughs> And then she would have to just slice it across the top of her finger like that yeah, is or put it inside. It would seem like trick, insanity yeah. that somebody would have to do that to themselves. I mean, granted, it's been a very long time since I've been around anybody who is 
I haven't. I know people who are diabetic and they use insulin, but it's been a while since I've actually seen them actively test themselves or use the product in front of me. Mm-hmm. They've come a long way in the last three or four years on how uh, blood sugar measurements are made. It's very low dose. They don't need even that much blood. Um, I mean, you're talking about fractions of a fractions of a milliliter of blood. Uh, you don't have to do large cuts anymore. And it used to be they needed quite a bit of blood to test the, the sugar every day. Not so much anymore. Why do you think it is that the insurance companies wouldn't want to cover, are trying not to cover the chip versus covering the the other methods of doing things? Does that go back to manufacturing a marketing dispute, or is it just that you know? Well, I mean, money. I can't think of any other reason why. It's all money, dude. It's a new. Oh. It's a new device. It's only. It's like less than a year old. So it's at its peak price on the market. Uh, I imagine in five years when the price comes down, because there'll be lots of generic versions of these same chips. They'll be what, like, okay, you have diabetes now, you're going to get one of these chips. What's the price of it now? What does it cost as of today? Just I think you're talking about like the $300, $400, $500 range. Okay. You get it like every month. So yeah, when the chip becomes 15 bucks and it's affordable for everybody, then the insurance will be like, yeah, now we have no problem giving this to the patients because so now we'll be able to make sure that they live longer and healthier because now they can check their blood sugar at every every instant. So basically, they don't want a block. They want the entire city. If they're mm-hmm. going to sell some shit on the street, they want to flood it like Denzel Washington did with Blue Magic. They don't want a little piece of it. They want the entire thing, which that's... Okay, so then... Now that brings me to something else. Again, if I'm killing you, dude, feel free to stop me. Uh, but I, I might have to leave here in a little bit. I I do have to go to sleep since I have to wake up at like 4 a.m. tomorrow. But we're good. Okay. Um, I was gonna say. All right. So since there's a if there's a chip for diabetes, is there two thing two part question? One was a while ago on the radio. I heard a story about a kid to uh, you know make it short and simple. Kid was a hockey player, got checked by another player into the uh, glass, wound up breaking his spine. Now, uh, in the wheelchair, paraplegic, can't really move anything at all, stuck in a chair, all that fun stuff that comes along with it. They were talking about an ex- um, surgery that they could do where I guess they could artificially create nerves or whatever to uh, mimic your body's original spine to try to see if they'll make you be able to walk again. Uh, with- yeah. Go ahead. The, uh, the research I've seen is, is twofold. Uh, one, they're looking at using stem cells. I know they injected some people with stem cells who had what's called complete dissection of the spinal cord where the spinal cord was cut clean through. And they injected stem cells. And one person who had this procedure done, they actually grew some new nerve that connected the top and bottom of, you know, of that dissection where that cut is made. So there was some kind of new connection established. Uh, the other modality that they're investigating is just intensive, intensive physical therapy, where you just keep moving the legs and you make the legs work until they rebuild the connection to the brain. 
Yeah, I've actually seen that happen. You know, there, there was a video that I saw like a long, long time ago where some guy actually did that. Like, well, and when, okay. I'm, when I'm saying intense, I'm talking about like like bodybuilding working out. Yeah, no, no, I know. The, 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 the video I saw actually, you know, actually, it, you, well, you know, it was condensed, obviously, but it showed him that this guy, you know, didn't give up. The doctor said he would never walk again, but you know, he put his mind to it, and obviously that that was a rare doesn't work for everybody. I guess the guy had a. But RSC, before you know, before you go, uh, did I did I understand that article right when I read it before? Yeah, the, the one about the exosomes. Yes. Yeah, they're like they're chemical packets of communication for the nerves. Oh yeah, so they no. talk to each other. Yeah, no, I just wanted to Outside know, like, because yeah, you know, I talked, to, I talked to Kevin, you know, to Kevin before. Oh, hey, Crispers here. So now we have a party. <laughs> well, we yeah. had a party before, but. No, that's my that's my heater that uh, just kicked on, but I'll throw myself on mute while you guys are talking. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, yeah. If you have any more questions, Kev, maybe I could take one or two more, or uh, Athena, if you want wanted to ask anything. But I think I'll have to head out here in a little bit. Yeah, that's fine. Like you know, I I guess I I just I just wanted to know whether I actually understood the article correctly when when I was talking about it because 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 I was talking to Kevin about it the other day. And I was like, well, I'm not really sure. I'm not a doctor, and that this worked out for the best. You know what I mean? To have uh, you, and then I invited Kevin, and now CRISPR. I was going to say, is it possible now, going back to the microchip thing real fast, do you think it's possible that we could see in the next five or ten years that something like that, I mean, not let's not say that it will be mandatory, but that maybe technology like that would be able to... Uh, better understand so we can help diagnose and treat diseases like MS or even addiction better in that way it, oh, because it definitely it, because it's inside of your body is that going to give you guys is it going to give you a sort of a bird's eye view of what is happening inside of our bodies versus where how everything is now where you have to be on the outside and it's almost like you're trying to crack a safe to figure out what's going on in the inside yeah i mean that's the real problem of the testing that you did for your ms it's just the mri is just a snapshot it's just a picture of what your body looks like at that one instant and like i said you you seem from what you described you sound like you have that relapsing remitting pattern where it comes and goes well if you don't take the picture at the right time you're not going to see the ms it wasn't surprising, and that's why the testing in, in, in medicine, it's not 100%. Just because you get positive testing doesn't necessarily mean you have the disease. You have to confirm it with another test to increase the likelihood that you're actually correct. Same thing with you know negative testing. Yeah, I mean, one negative test usually is enough to clear you of a condition, but in your case, you were having symptoms of MS. One negative MRI shouldn't have made someone dismiss your MS symptoms. That, right. That seemed kind of ludicrous. Okay, and I have one other one other question for you. Uh, it just popped into my head. Like you mentioned bodybuilding, which is kind of what brings me to this, and it's probably a little bit more simple. At least I I hope it is. But I take a thyroid medication, which I've heard people say that it's a like a testosterone replacement. And then we talked about steroids earlier in the sense of prednisone or similar drugs like that are these drugs 
are they closely related to things like HGH that, you know, um, football players and certain bodybuilders use when they juice and stuff like that? Or is it, is it just lumped into, would it be considered to be from, like, I guess that, that part of it, that drug family? Uh, if you're talking about, I think you're probably talking about levothyroxine. It's, yes, that's that's it. Yeah. Replacement. It, it's not related to these other things. Okay, that, I was I was curious about that. I don't Maybe know. There was. Kevin, have you heard of the Fitbits that now have like uh, electrical monitoring for the heart on them? Are those like the watches? Yeah, there's gonna be stuff like that that comes down the pipe, where like you just wear this bracelet, and at any instant you can look and see all your vital signs. How your heart is working, how your blood sugar and your blood chemistry is like that's what's gonna that's the future. And you see this happening within if you were to give it a comfortable estimate, would you say within the next 10 years would be yeah, five to 10 years, five to 10 years. They're already working on making apps for the uh, iPhone and Android for these products. That way, you can just wear the bracelet and then wave your phone near the the bracelet whenever you want the information that's so crazy i mean that would bring me into a whole another list of things like malfunctions and shit like that but i know that we'd have to get a tech guy in here and then plus that you know that brings a whole another level of conversation into what we're talking about but thanks for uh answering my questions dude i know that i, I threw a lot at you today it was nice talking to you kevin definitely you too man uh, Athena, thanks so much for the invitation to talk. Yeah. Uh, if I may, shout out to whoever's listening. I think either Friday night or Saturday night. I think I'm leaning Saturday night. I'll be doing a discussion with uh, Christina Blackfeather and Char and some other people on someone's channel. So keep an eye out for that. Someone's uh, channel. Probably. I don't know. I don't know which channel. <laughs> It'll be about Sorry. health insurance. I'll definitely give you a link. Yeah. Anyways, th- you know, thanks for stopping by. How do they teach you how to tell someone that they're dying? It's kind of like teaching architects how to explain why their building fell down. Do you role playing stuff? Yeah. One of us gives the bad news, and one of us gets the bad news. What do you have to do to get an A in your dying 101? They grade you on gentleness and supportiveness, sort of scale to measuring compassion. It's a basic truth of the human condition that everybody lies. The only variable is about what. The great thing about telling someone they're dying is that it tends to focus their priorities, find out what matters to them, what they're willing to die for. There's nothing we can do except deal with the pain. Imagine that.